you please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6? Our topic this morning is the church as we continue through our worldview study. As we begin, we'll read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. I'll be reading from the New King James. Follow along as I read God's holy word. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. God bless the reading. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as we've been praying Psalm 119, verse 18, month, our prayer echoing the psalmist would open our eyes to behold wondrous from your law. Our prayer this morning that you would open our eyes to the church as you as we look into your word, pray that, that you would so clearly your word. Your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, hearts, understand, receive from apply these for your glory. Pray these things. Please be seated. As you're finding your seats, I'd encourage you to have your outlines nearby. Watching online, the outlines found on our website. In sales and in marketing, you sometimes have to do an assignment called an elevator pitch. An elevator pitch, the idea is that you have to make your claim, make your hook in about 30 seconds, as long as you would be in an elevator with someone. So obviously, if you've only got 30 seconds to make your sale or make your pitch, you clearly can't say everything you want to say, but you want to say enough in that 30 seconds that your audience that can't escape you is on board with whatever it is that you are selling or presenting. I feel like today I am giving you elevator. I do not mean I'm going to be done in 30 seconds, not even close. Uh, but there's definitely so much more to say on the church than what I have. Uh, in this. I think the most painful uh, editing that I've ever done of any sermon, if you are passionate about the doctrine of the church, I guarantee you I'm leaving things out that you wish I would have included. Uh, there's, there's way too much. And but I do pray that you would uh, be open to see all these truths that we do have here. Uh, God says so much about his church, and it is so important, and it's so necessary that we grasp the church the way 
God grasps the church, that we see the church the way God wants us to see the church. Because I think we've probably seen a theme going as we've been going through this series. As, as we're talking about a biblical worldview, the sad truth is there's just a lot of Christians that come to church every Sunday that don't yet have a biblical worldview. And they love Christ, and they think they love the church, but maybe their idea of what the church is isn't clear or isn't correct. So I'm praying as we're going through this that our minds are being more and more conformed to Christ's. As we begin by uh, reviewing, we're in our worldview series, and then within that worldview series, we're talking specifically this, these next few weeks about sphere sovereignty, as uh, Abraham Kuyper phrased it. And so that, that visual, maybe that helps us a little bit, but if we can picture, we used last week's example as the family. God says in Scripture, this is what the family is. So if this is what the family is in this sphere, anything outside of the sphere is not the family. And how much in our world, how much work is there of trying to redefine the family? Well, this is family. Well, this is what a man is. This is what a father is. This is what a wife is. This is the role and responsibility of children. And hopefully, as we're hearing those arguments by the world, we have the scripture as our lens, and we say, that's outside the sphere. It's not the family. Because God defined the family. Tells me what it is in the, in the scriptures. And so this week, where we're studying the church. And again, the world has their ideas on what the church is, on what the church should look like, on how the church should function. Maybe those views are right. Maybe those views are wrong. And we determine right or wrong, not based on our opinion, not based on culture, not based on a vote. We judge those things as true or false based on the validity of what the scripture Okay, so let's define the church. Actually, before we define the church, let's read from Charles Spurgeon. Here's his quote, and he said this over a hundred years ago, letter B in your name. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Could have said that today, couldn't he? He also could have said that 2,000 years ago in Corinth. And he also could have said that 4,000 years ago when Israel left Egypt. How much of that wandering in the wilderness. I said this quote a few weeks ago. It took Israel one day to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. The world's philosophy, the world's religion, the world's way of thinking had captivated those people in Israel, it captivated those Christians in Corinth, captivated Christian Virgin's Day, and it's a struggle today for us. A struggle. We have to fight to make sure that the way we process things is in line with God's word and not as according to the world as they're trying to guide and direct our way of life. Now, as we define the church, it, at its most basic definition, letter A, under the introduction, it means to call out. Okay, so at its very most basic, to call out, to call out of the world and then into communion with God. 
okay? And now, I, I think we, we, maybe we've read those scriptures that remind us we're, we're, we're to be called out of the world. That doesn't mean we escape the world. There's several passages that tell us our, our mindset is we're like pilgrims. Our, our, our home is heaven. Our true citizenship as those adopted into the family of God, our true citizenship is heaven. But for right now, we're here. And we're here in the world. And we're supposed to be in the world if God has us here. So we're not supposed to do this quick escape to heaven. We're not supposed to join some little commune where we only fellowship with 15 people that we know we can trust and stuff like that. We're called to go out into the world and preach the gospel. We're called to live in this world. This is where we live right now. But as we live in this world, there's the recognition, I'm not of this world. By God's grace, I have been renewed. I've been given new life with a new heart and a new mind, and that makes me different. Hopefully not the really weird, awkward, different, but it should be a different that's noticeable. My honesty should set me apart. My holy living and desire for God should set me apart. Because God has called me out, adopted me. And so we as the church, we are the called out ones. And the Bible uses that word church in a couple of different means. It could say church in the sense of a house church, meaning a, a congregation so small they met in someone's living room or upper room or whatever. Sometimes the word church is used to refer to the church of a city or the church of a region, like the church of Thessalonica, the church of Galatia, the church of Corinth. And sometimes the word church is used to mean the, the worldwide church. Every single person adopted and saved by grace throughout history even. So in the, a lot of times we'll refer to that as the invisible church. I, I can't see everyone in this world who's saved. I can't see the people that were saved a thousand years ago, but they are very much members of Christ's church. Okay, so the Bible uses that same word in several different manners, and so as we're going through this, it will kind of be interchangeable. Sometimes the use of the word church will mean a congregation, and sometimes the word church will mean all the saved people in the world. Okay, so let's jump in now. Uh, to Roman numeral one, what are some things that we as God's people need to know about the church? First of all, we need to know church belongs to God. Colossians 1.18, I think it'll be on the screen what I mean by that. The computer equipment has been working horribly today. So um, somebody can signal me if it stops working. It's not Dylan's fault at all. Uh, Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. How do we start when we think of the church? God's. It is his church. The Pope is not in charge of the church. Pastors are not in charge of the church. The church board is not in charge of the church. The vote of the members is not the ruling influence in the church, this God's church. And I mean that in regards to this congregation, and I mean that in regards to the worldwide church. Jesus Christ is 
And when we start there, we're already eliminating an awful lot of the world's mindset on the church. Because a lot of the way local congregations function is based on the preference of somebody. The preference of the pastor, the preference of the members, the preference of the world that we're trying to please so they walk through our doors. Here's the first of many things I'm going to say to offend you today. Not about you. Not about me. Not about my preference. Not about my opinion. Not about the way I did things growing up. This is God's church. So with that, letter B, if it is God's church, if the church does belong to God with Christ as the head, then God determines the means of worship. We're going to read a few sections from the London Baptist Confession of Faith Chapter 22, and again, hopefully it's on the screen behind me. In chapter 22, the, the first uh, paragraph reads, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. I'd encourage you to read that a few times. I put the in your notes. There's a, a website where you can go and look that up. Please don't look it up now. Wait till the end of the service. Um, but read it a few times. This is what, if we've got a theology book in front of us, it might call it the regulative me method, the regulative means of worship. What that means is God determines the way we worship. Now, when we're talking about how we worship, and we do have to see this from a couple different ways, at least. In one sense, we have the worship comes from worth-ship, us showing our value in something through how we speak of it, how we think of it, how we act of it, whatever it is. So we are worshiping creatures. We all worship something. Based on, uh, somebody told me, you can say what you worship when you evaluate your checkbook and your schedule. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? That's what you worship. Okay? We as worshiping creatures, we are created to worship the one true God. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 wonderfully says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So in one sense, because we are worshiping creatures and we worship God through all of our life, we can and should worship God in everything that we do. The, the mom can change her kids' dirty diapers for the glory of the Lord. The plumber can unclog a drain for the glory of the Lord. The builder can build a wall for the glory of God. The nurse can take care of people during her shift for the glory of God. You can drive home after church service for the glory of God. We can worship God and should worship God in all that we do. That's one sense of worship. But then there's also the sense of worship that happens in this area on Sunday morning, 
during the public corporate worship. And when we are talking about public corporate worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's time done in God's means. I don't have as much flexibility on worship in here. Very, very specific. As a plumber, I can worship God Monday through Friday doing my work. As a computer programmer, I can worship God programming computers, but when I come in here on Sunday worship, I am not thinking about programming computers. That goes away. That's my Monday through Friday. And if God created me in that way, I should be the best, do that to the best of my ability for the glory of God Monday through Friday. In here, God says exactly what we, not that this building is specialized, it's just four walls. We can do it in the park. We can do it in Pastor Brian's living room. It doesn't matter. For public corporate worship. Now, look at, now, this is from the London Baptist point five. Look at how these wonderful people said it ever so many years ago. The reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. And again, I'll encourage you to look that up sometime this week because I, I start off by saying God determines the way of worship and I haven't read a verse yet. We'll go to that website and there's all sorts of little uh, little check marks, little um, footnotes, thank you. Those are footnotes. Read the section, the footnote. One verse, two verses, ten verses. Here's what we're saying. Here's all the Bible verses that tell us exactly why we say. The Bible directs us and guides us. This is how we worship God because this is how God, as the creator of everything, said to be. We worship God in the preaching of the word. We worship God in singing unto him. Here, very important for Bible worldview. This isn't a concert. Our, the, I don't know what to call them, worship team, singing team. If all of worship, all of life is worship, then just calling the singing worship might be a little extreme. Um, them people. They sound great some days. There's times where the sound is working right. You just listen, you're like, wow. But I'm not a spectator. And when they, they're, they're, when they come up here, I know their heart. They're not trying to impress you with their abilities. They're trying to use, they're being serving God by serving us, by leading us as we sing praises to him. We all take part in this together. I'm not really a singer. Are you saved by grace? Sing it. Voice sounds bad. I don't care if you sound like Chewbacca. We're praising the Lord, and it sounds beautiful to him. Maybe out of respect to the person next to you, you don't belt if you sound like Chewbacca. Praise the Lord. We sing praises to his name. That echoes what happens in heaven. This is preparing us for eternity. So whether I like 
that song or like that melody or like the sound of my voice, again, I'm going to say this over and over again, your opinion doesn't matter. We are worshiping creatures and we worship God in singing. We worship God in receiving the word preached. This is probably way out of order. You see Westminster Confession 160? Sweet. Westminster Confession, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? You guys know you had a responsibility here? It is required of those that hear the word preached, number one, that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Number two, that they examine what they hear by Scripture. Number three, they receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. Number four, that they meditate and confer of it. Number five, that they hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. We all have a responsibility in We have a responsibility to sing praises. We have a responsibility when we partake of the elements. We have a responsibility when we're sitting here hearing. We pray all the time, remove the distractions. We pray that all the time because the distractions can come all the time. We pray that because we all have that responsibility, whether you're a note taker or you're going to listen and meditate later, whatever the case is, this time matters. And as we grasp the biblical worldview of the church, we value every second of public worship time. Because this time is as unto the Lord. And you look at letter C under Roman numeral one, God establishes and defines the roles and responsibilities within the church. So you've got 1 Timothy chapter three in there. That's the section with the qualifications of elders and deacons. But you've also got in your note, or just the reference, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 31, that's a section talking about the spiritual giftedness of the body of Christ. So when we come to church, who has a responsibility? The answer is every single person saved by grace. It's not just the pastor and the music team. It's not just the deacons who are working in the back making sure we've all got our seats. We all have a responsibility because God has empowered all of his people with spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts that you have was given with this specific purpose of honoring God by serving the brothers and sisters of Christ. And the most effective way we do that, the best way we have to use those spiritual gifts, right here with our brothers and sisters. Look with me. This is not in your notes. Hopefully the PowerPoint's going to work. Look at all these one another's in the scripture that we are to do as the church, as unto the Lord. We're to love one another, pray for one another, be kind to one another, serve one another, give preference to one another, build one another up, bear one another's burdens, teach one another, be of the same mind with one another, comfort one another, regard one another as more important. A few more to come at the end of the service. This is how we work out life with one another as church. Look at that list. If this is what we are supposed to do, one for another in public worship, offensive thing number five, I'm going to say. Online church is an offensive thing. At the very least, 
online church is a weak substitute when I can't be. But if, if, if church life, if the reason God created the church is not just to hear a sermon and either give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, but if, if the purpose of the church is that we all are used in God's plan as a perfect plan he had as vessels to build one another, to encourage one another, to guide one another, to teach one another, to bless one another, then we all need to be here. And we all need to work with one another and serve one another and know one another and love one another. And please hear my heart. I know as I'm saying this, there are times and reasons why you can't be here. We've, we have Gil and Susan and we have John and Linda that have been watching from home for so long for health reasons. And it, it, I'm, I'm, they're probably watching right now. If you're watching, we love you. We're praying for you. We miss you. We're thankful that you are joining us the best you can because of circumstances. We know people get sick. We do have people in the church that have jobs like nurses and police officers and stuff where sometimes Sunday is required. But if I truly grasp the biblical worldview of the church, I am here if there's anything I can do. And it's not just for me. So now hear me. If you don't come to church next week, you hurt my kids. Because my kids need your gift. You're hurting my family members when you're not here using your gifts to serve my family members. We all play a vital role. And obviously, you know, don't get, okay, I've got to serve how many people when Pastor Brian says amen? We obviously cannot serve everybody. But once that benediction goes, you're on the clock. Maybe you can have one conversation, maybe it's five conversations. Your mindset should be, who's God going to put in my life today to serve? Or who am I going to encounter and they're going to serve me? So I'm coming in pumped, ready to go. All right, Dan Fisher's mine today. I'm going to hunt him down. Then it says, amen. And I'm running people over to get to Dan because God's had Dan on my heart all week. I rush over to Dan. I can't wait to serve him. And we talk for 10 minutes. And afterwards, I go, he served me. He blessed me. I thought God wanted me to go be that blessing to him, and he used his spiritual gift in a way I could have never fathomed. He said just the right thing at just the right time. I'm ready to tackle this one. This is how we function as the body of Christ. We, we, we have to embrace this. So that, that, that fellowship time is a vital part of our church life. That's how we serve and love and encourage one another. So others serve us, which we need. I need your gifts. My kids need your gifts. We, we, we embrace this. We're, we're not spectators. We're not customers. We're not critics. We are active family members. Loving together, serving together, encouraging together, working together, fighting Satan's forces together for the good of the kingdom. Who we are in the church. in Roman God determines the purpose for the church, his church. So again, our, our preferences we lay aside, our opinions we lay aside, we say, God, you guide us, you direct us, you tell us what to do. Roman numeral two, as Pastor Brian prayed, we need to understand 
that the church is the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, letter A, the church should be pure. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word. That he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that the church should be holy and without blemish. We see that picture of the future, and the beautiful picture of the future is at that wedding supper of the Lamb, Christ marries a perfect, pure bride. Reality. We're far from perfect right now. We're not as pure as we should be right now. But if the biblical worldview is we as the church of God, we as the bride of Christ should be pure, then that should motivate me to pursue, pursue purity. Purity should be a huge desire in my life. I should be doing everything in my power by the strength of the Holy Spirit to get rid of the dross, get rid of the impurities, get rid of the sin that is holding me back and pursue purity. And I should pursue purity, pursue purity for myself first and then very close to that, I should desire the purity of the local congregation that I worship with. And your purity should matter to me. We pursue purity as we, letter B, as we pursue the idea that we should be united. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Do you see all those ones in there? The, 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 so like the one another's, we're seeing we should be of one accord, we should be of one mind in verse two. There's other ones. This isn't in your notes. Hopefully it's gonna be on the screen. When talking about the church, it says that we should belong to, we belong to one fold, we are members of one household. We are members of one body. Uh, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed that the disciples would be as united one to another as is the Father and the Son. That, that all week has been blowing my mind. His prayer for us was that we would share the same unity with each other as he shares with the Father. Incredible. But we as God's people, should value and prioritize the idea of unity. And when I'm saying unity, unity is different than agreement. It's football season. We're in the playoffs. If I wanted, I could look online real quick and I could figure out which local sports bar will have the game on and where I can be with people cheering for the same team as me. And I can wear my jersey, and I can be surrounded by people cheering for the same team. And when our team scores, I could, yay. And when our team does poorly, I could respond however mature people respond at sports bars. I'm in agreement with all those people in the team that I'm rooting for. 
So that can be fun, that can be enjoyable, that can be memorable. Biblical unity is way deeper than agreeing on a sports team. Biblical unity is not based on we have the same preference. Biblical unity is rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, so biblical unity is not just this easy thing we come together when our sports team plays. Biblical unity takes work. Because look around this room, we're different. We come from different parts of the world, different parts of the city, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different sports team preferences, but we don't find our unity in those things. We find our unity in Christ. And so as different as you and I are, we have a unity much deeper than you and I. We have a unity that we take into eternity. And I want to do everything in my power to make those realities a reality now. I'm gonna share that unity with you in the future. I'm part of the same body, part of the same building, part of the same, uh, we're both part of the bride of Christ. Let's work towards unity. Despite our differences, despite everything, we strive and work together for unity for the body of Christ. And look at Philippians again. Look at all of the rejection of my preferences, the rejection of, of my high thoughts of myself. And I humble myself and I think more highly of you as I strive for that unity. Unity matters. And, and with all that, let us see if we're striving for purity, if we're striving for unity, if we're striving for Christ's idea of the church, then public worship should be a priority in our lives. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, let's start in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You look back at those verses, stare at them for a few minutes, try to pick up on how much of those verses is about you. We're holding fast our confession, why? So we can consider one another. So we can stir up love in one another. So we can stir up good works in one another. So we can exhort one another as the day of Christ's return approaches. Our time is very, very limited on this earth. And God has us here for a reason. And that major reason, honor God by serving my brothers and sisters. So again, coming on Sunday morning, it's not, ah, I had a long week and I'm really tired. And you know what you need? Your brothers and sisters. I, I'm, I'm not feeling like worship today. And you know what you need? You need to be in an environment of worship. Best way for us to serve you. And you embracing your role in the church have to put yourselves in places where you can serve your brothers and sisters. Public worship matters. It matters to God what matters to us. Flip your notes over, please. Roman numeral number three. We need to understand about the church that the church will be victorious. Points A and B remind us of the reality of the war, of the battles that are taking place in this world. There are attacks from without. There are attacks from within. Now, the book of Acts has all sorts of examples of both. Um, with, with the idea that we are being attacked as a church, we do have this wonderful guarantee of victory. We already read it at the beginning, but as we read Matthew 16, verse 18 again, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against Christ and his church. Let's think back to olden times when cities had walls around their borders. We don't have that too much today, especially in America, but if we can envision this, your city is protected by the wall, and you've got that gate so you can get in and out. If you are at war with another nation, you want the battles to take place in an open field. You want the battles to take place near their walls. You don't want the battles taking place near your walls. Because that means you are very much on the defensive and not too much work it's going to take before they break through your gates and now you're in a lot of trouble. Your gates are your last line of defense. Read that verse again. It's the gates of hell. Too often in our biblical worldview, I think we have this defensive Saying, oh, Satan got me so bad today. Oh, Satan's forces, they're on me this week. I'm not doubting that. But let's remind ourselves of what we can be doing to take the fight to him. Satan, I've felt the influence of Satan's forces today. I better share the gospel tomorrow. I better be in deep prayer for my brothers and sisters tonight. That's a big attack on Satan in this world. And it's time for me to value my role in the war, to value my place in the church, understand I'm a part of the winning side that's taking the fight to him and his gates. You have the guarantee of it. Roman numeral four. Let's remind ourselves when we think about the church that the church is a work in progress. It is not an accident that we started our worldview series by studying the fall. Because the ramifications of the fall affect every single part of our world. And when we think about this world, and when we think about the church, we have to think about the ramifications of the fall. We have the wonderful truth, the wonderful good news, that as you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you are made new. You have a new life with a new heart and a new mind, and that's incredible. But you and I still have the remnants of the flesh that we do. That affects how interact with you. And the reality is, as we talk about church life, I will hurt you. It will hurt me. Nothing I'm looking forward to. Nothing I want to happen. If we are truly going to live life with each other, or truly going to invest in each other, you're going to see me flaws and all. I'm going to hurt you. We can avoid that if we play the Sunday game. We can avoid that if we come into church and we put on the Sunday smile. And when someone asks, How you doing? We've got our programmed answers. Too blessed to be stressed. But in my head, I'm going, I'm so lost and confused and hurt, I can't even stand. 
but I'm going to lie to your face and smile. I'm going to say I'm fine. I'm going to hope that you're going to do the same courtesy to me. I hope you lie to me because when I ask how you're doing, I don't really care. When I ask how you're doing, I'm hoping you say great, and I'm hoping we can talk about the football game, and I can leave, and I can check mark and say I did my Sunday thing. I came to a comfortable place with a comfortable chair where I agreed with most of the things that guy said, and I left without my world being shaken, and I can move on with my life. No unity, no growth, but no chance to be. And that's what I'm looking for. As we read the scripture, you know what we find about the church? We're bruised. We're wounded, scarred, we're limping. But we're doing it with Christ. We lay our burdens on him. He takes the load with us. And when we do real church life, really open up, how you doing? I was hoping someone would ask, I'm okay. I need help. And a healthy church, dismiss after the benediction, will have joyful conversations, great fellowship, and we'll have people praying over here crying over here, changing phone numbers, saying, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Praying for you. Work. It's going to take an investment. It's going to take an openness to be real. It's going to take an openness to be hurt. Letter C. As the church, we have to embrace the reality. I got to be ready to forgive one another. I have to be prepared to forgive you. I have to be prepared to be willing for you to forgive me. And that word for forgiveness in Colossians 3, uh, Colossians 3, let's read verses 12 and 13. I hope it's on the slides. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. That word for forgiveness is not the word we usually see in the New Testament for forgiveness. As the, the normal word we see forgiveness means to cast away. This word for forgiveness is much closer related to the word grace. Undeserved kindness. This word is so perfect in this verse because this verse is talking about the daily working out of Christian principles with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Daily, I show grace to you that you don't deserve. Daily, you show grace to me that I don't deserve. I really hurt you. It was not okay. But by God's grace, you're willing to forgive me. As a counselor... Sometimes people will come to me talking about other people in the church. He just irritates me so much. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, when people say, he irritates me so much, please understand that I protect you 0% of the time. 
He irritates me so much. Yep. You irritate others so much. We are all irritating someone. And way worse than that, you sin against so much. Sinned against God more times today than you willing to, like I did. And despite your sin, despite your irritation, despite everything about you, Christ and holy forgave you, showed you undeserved kindness. And we now show that same undeserved kindness. It's not based on how annoying someone is. Getting grounded in what Christ did. Point to Christ. All of this forgiveness is based on, not based on how great I am, how great they are, how much we get along. It's rooted and grounded in Christ did. You're in the church. Good point. And sometimes it's harder than others. Praise the Lord, we have a family to hold us accountable. To encourage us. It's possible as we've been going through this series that every week you're like, man, I was thinking wrong about that too. Man, my, I, my worldview was off there too. And then you've just got this like avalanche of failures and you've got this ridiculous mountain to climb in all these different areas that we got to change our, I got to think differently about this, I got to think differently about this. I don't even know where that bad thought came from. What do I do with all this? Uh, one of the lesser known mottos of the Reformation, those wonderful reformers of so many years ago, the sola scripturas, yeah, scripture alone, glory of God alone. We probably know those. Maybe we didn't hear one a little lesser known. One of their mottos was always reforming. It was a reminder to them as they are digging into the word, we haven't arrived yet. And we're still studying the scriptures, and odds are we're going to come to a scripture at some point where we go, wow, I'm not doing that. I didn't realize that. And it was the reminder for them to humble themselves, no matter how much they knew, to say, if God's pointing me in a different direction right here, by God's grace, let's do it. Let's think right and apply it right and live it out right. I pray that we as a congregation can be a church humble enough to have that same motto, we're always reforming. Every week, coming into service with an open heart, God teaching your word, means I'm doing something wrong today. As we live together, as we work together in this church that belongs to God, where priority, uh, where purity is a priority, where unity is a priority, where we embrace the war that is coming our way, where we prepare ourselves to really love and encourage one another even when it hurts. Do it for the glory of his name. Father in heaven, how humbling it is to think that despite our flaws and our sins, you adopted us into your family. How remarkable it is to think that 
you are preparing us and sanctifying us as your pure bride. John Calvin said in his institutes that you work daily to iron out the wrinkles and remove the spots. How beautiful it is to think that you're working on us daily. We're grateful for your love and your mercy and grace in our lives. We're grateful for how patient you are with us. We're thankful that you know our frame and know how much help we need. Tell us just what we need to know about this, about your church. I pray that we would value you. Value corporate worship with our brothers and sisters. We would value work that is happening in congregations that we've never seen, never met, where people are doing a work that matters for your kingdom. That we are brothers and sisters, that we have a true unity. We're grateful for all those throughout this We pray that you would empower us your vessels on Sunday morning. Give us a heart to value public worship. Give us a heart to invest one another openly, humbly. Teach us how to use our spiritual need you, Lord. That your hand would be upon us and you would